You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Welcome to The Devoted Podcast. If you're watching us on either our YouTube channel or on our Apple videocast, you will see it looks a little different than we did on the last episode that we did. First, I've swindled my husband into joining me on this. This is my husband, Chris. And uh, you're actually in our kitchen. We did this because uh, what we want to talk about today is apologetics, but in a slightly more family-friendly form. Um, Hopefully not make it too terribly academic and a little more user-friendly for the kids. But it's something that we do as a family, and we do it right here at our kitchen table. So it just felt like a normal place to have this conversation. So we want to talk about what apologetics is, why we do this and think it's important, and then kind of give you an example of maybe an issue or one particular topic that you can talk about with your kids in uh, with apologetics. But I want to also mention, this isn't just for parents, right? In Jude, it talks about us contending for the faith. And uh, that's a message to every believer. We all have family members or friends that have perhaps walked away from the faith or have questions about things. And apologetics can help us contend for the faith in this way. So just want to add that this is that caveat. This is for everyone, not just for parents, even though we are going to talk about examples that we've specifically done with our kids. So do you want to add to that? No, I think the whole notion of kitchen table apologetics is important for all parents. And it is a captive audience that you have with your kids for hopefully a few nights a week. And why not take advantage of that time? Why not use it to talk about something that will impact them for eternity? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when we talk about the word apologetics, it's just a, a reasoned argument for something. And it, it, you know, I think when we first threw that word out to our kids, they glazed over at us like this is something we're in school for. But that's all it is. It's just it's just giving a reasoned argument for your faith and some of the questions that they're going to be asked. um, We actually hope to be the ones to ask those questions first and hopefully let them think about those things, show them what the scripture says about those things so that when they do see those things online or in school or from a friend, It's not the first time they're hearing these things. It's not new. Mm -hmm. We um, also just want to mention here, we are certainly not experts in this, and we have stumbled (laughs) along in this process. Our kids are are 12, 15, and 17. That sounds crazy old. Um, And so we pick topics that are, uh, you know, appropriate for their age and that kind of stuff. But um, do you, we also just wanted to kind of make a shift with our kids. You know, when they're when your kids are really small, you're working on uh, teaching them Bible facts. You know, you're teaching them the books of the Bible and you're teaching them Bible verses, which are all really good things. But we want it as our kids got a little older, we started to see the need to really make that shift from head and, uh, you know, just facts and making it more of a something that they're really interacting with scripture or with the reasons for their faith and knowing where scripture says that and, and just the whys behind things. And it just sort of just solidified their faith in a, just in a better way. Does that mean that by increasing a bunch of head knowledge, you're necessarily you know thriving in your walk with the Lord? Not always, but being in scripture, learning and really studying scripture, that word contend in Jude is, um, it's, it's like a, 
it's a work word though. You know, it's like you're really, it's striving for something. You're putting a discipline to it. And so um, trying to pass that practice on to our kids and really even to ourselves as we try to figure some of these topics out, I think is really big. One of the things that we try to do with our kids is challenge them on their faith, on the things that they think they know, because we know that's going to happen at some point in their lives. When they leave our house and they go to college or they get into the work world, they are going to be confronted with challenges to their faith and to their beliefs. And so we want to preempt that by asking them really hard, critical questions about what do you believe and why do you believe it? If you're not careful, kids are going to hit a certain age where the Google search becomes their source of truth. Uh, in fact, in a lot of ways, what happens over time is the Google search becomes the Google church. And suddenly it's like whatever Google is telling me, that must be accurate. That must be right. Uh, but helping your kids to see you're talking to an unknown audience at that point. You don't know the biases that these people are bringing to the table when they're sharing with you what they think is right. And they're doing it very persuasively. And if it's the first time that your kids have ever heard sort of the counterpunch, the other side of the coin from everything that you've been telling them, and suddenly they see that this person is saying that and they're reading this chat board and you know, dozens of other people underneath that are, are piling on and saying the same things, it is going to begin to shake their faith if you don't equip them to understand exactly who is on the other end of those words and who's sharing that viewpoint. Yeah, and when one of the things when I first came upon this, um, just how important this issue was, I was reading a book that was talking just about a lot of stats with Gen Z and, and this younger generation. And it was talking about that 55 to 60% of kids today are walking away from their faith. As in, like in 10 years, they call them the nuns, meaning they, they don't return to the church, they just walk away altogether. And that statistic was not independent of, it, it didn't matter if you were a homeschool kid, if you were in Christian private school, if you were in public school, it, it, weekly church attending, twice a week church attending, it, none of those, those little caveats mattered to that statistic. And that was startling to me. And when I boiled that down for, it was my oldest, I think we had this conversation and he's got this great group of, you know, about 10 friends that they've just been friends for a really long time. They're a great group of kids, but I kind of boiled it down for him and said, okay, Evan, in 10 years, that means you're of your 10 friends, six of them are not only not going to church, they don't even really proclaim to eat, walking with the Lord at all. And then when you start putting faces to those uh, percentages and those statistics, it kind of hit home, not just for our kids, but, you know, certainly for us too. But what can we do about that? You know, and I think it is, is it a fail safe? Like if you have a list of uh, conversations, you can check them off one by one. You're totally sealing the deal. That's not going to be your kid. No, not necessarily, but you stand a so much better chance of um, equipping your kids and safeguarding them against those things by having these conversations and having that relationship with your kids that it's a safe, safe to bring questions and safe to talk about those things. Understanding that bias piece is so important. 
just literally this morning, we were talking about this during devotions with them, and I was giving them the example of the classic debate, which rages in our household a little bit, Mac versus PC, Mac. right? <laughs> PC. And uh, actually, unless it's a mobile device, and then I'm all for the Mac. I'm winning. But uh, if you are wanting to get some input, some outside viewpoints on the matter, and so you go and you type in Mac versus PC, let's say in our little hypothetical example, and you look at 10 different people and get their perspective on it. And let's say every one of those people are saying very forcefully and frankly, very convincingly, Mac is the way to go. It's so much better than PC and on and on and on all these things. If you don't realize that those 10 people happen to be Mac store employees, you've completely missed the context from which those people's opinions are being shared. They have a bias, right? Their very livelihood is tied to this debate of Mac versus PC. Now, when we step into the world of the Bible, it's the same issue. You're gonna have people maybe who had a bad experience earlier in their life in a church, and that experience has forever marked their view of Christianity, of the Bible, of anything having to do with God. And if you don't understand that that's the context, that's the bias that they're coming to this discussion with, and you're just reading whatever you saw on the internet when you typed in your question, man, you're missing out on a key element of what it means to be distinguishing and understanding where is this person coming from? And, and do I need to listen with a filtered view a little bit in what they're saying? And, you know, our kids, we are directing this towards our kids because they are, they've been brought up in a generation that they can Google anything, but we do that as adults. I mean, it's so easy and information is so readily available, good and bad, that it's quite simple to just to go to, go to the Google search and see what's there and not really vet out where these sources are and, and know some of this stuff for ourselves. And so that's why I think it's really important that, yeah, we're talking about this a little bit for kids, but honestly, we have to be on our guard with these things and the biases that these people are coming from as well and be really discerning about what we're reading and the sources and all of those, those things too. So um, that I think is just an important thing to look at as we kind of give the, like the groundwork for, for why we do this. Yeah, so that's the foundation. That's the, that's our why. You're right. Mm -hmm. I don't want when my when my boys get outside of our house the first time they've ever heard these arguments against the Bible. I, I don't I don't want the first time they've ever heard that to be when I'm not around. So I want to throw it right at them and say, "What are you going to do with this? What do you think about this?" And challenge them a little bit. Let them be a little bit uncomfortable. You know, shake that faith just a little bit in a, in a safe environment where I can come in and then say, look, here's the right way for you to be thinking about this. Um, and so we, our thought was we might even just go through yep. a couple of, we thought we'd start with a big one. You know, one of the main uh, topics that you'll come across in apologetics, which is the authority or maybe another way to say it, the reliability of the scripture. 
And we feel like this one is such an important one to start with because there's so many things that uh, your kids are going to have and you're going to have arguments for that you may tell the friend that is struggling or arguing with you on a particular issue. You can say, well, it says this in scripture and you can point that out. But if that person is coming at, well, how do you even know that scripture is reliable? How do you know that this book that we have is even you know, it's so many thousands of years old. And the thing that's alarming, I mean, that used to be something that you predominantly heard more in an atheist circle or just in a non-believing circle, but more and more, you're hearing that in Christian circles. So teaching our kids and reminding ourselves to be very critical thinkers about um, the the sources that we're hearing and the things that of why why we're wanting to look at this, it's really important to know the Bible's reliable and why it's reliable. So we're going to pick a couple because, I mean, there's people that study half their lives on this issue and they have written, you know, giant books on this thing. So we're certainly not going to cover this exhaustively. And like I said, our kids are 12, 15 and 17. So we try not to flood them with, you know, too much jargon, but something to make it simple for them to kind of get their hands around so they can say, hey, I can put my confidence that the Bible that I have that is absolutely trustworthy. So the the first one that we want to touch on in this whole question of is the Bible reliable is the fact that the authors of the Bible predominantly were eyewitnesses to the events that they were writing about. And that's a huge, huge deal. Uh, Whether we're talking about Moses in writing about the in the Pentateuch about Exodus, or whether we're talking about the you know the Apostle John and writing his gospel, um, I think First John one uh, really clarifies this beautifully. In verse one, it says, "That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched." This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Over and over there in the first couple verses, John is making the point. I didn't just hear about this from someone else. This is not hearsay. I was there. I was leaning against Jesus's chest around the Last Supper, right? I heard him say these words, and now I'm here testifying to you guys so that you know. Eyewitness accounts are invaluable. I was telling uh, my boys, we have Amy's brother is a cop. And I was telling him, you know, if he comes on a scene, a crime scene, and there's a group of people standing off to the side, the first thing he's gonna do is walk over to that group of people and ask them one question. Who saw what happened? And I was telling them that there's two people standing next to each other and one person is like, well, I heard so-and-so say that they saw this other person who was standing over here and, and heard what was going on versus the person next to him says, I was right in the middle of it and I saw everything that happened. That's the person that he is going to want to key in on and talk to because they saw it for themselves. So eyewitness accounts, obviously, that's like the really big one so that we can look at the things that are in here and say the things that these people are recording. It's because they actually saw it and they were actually there. But the next 
tier to that argument is like, well, that may be, but how do you know that what's written here, what's actually in these pages, um, is what they saw at all? Like, how do you justify that? Because there are folks that really poke a lot of questions and they'll say all kinds of things like, you know, the Bible has contradictions and all of these things that there are answers to these things. There's good ones. But um, you have to be able to also speak to the fact that there is, that we can rely on the actual words that are written here. So, um, you know, the, one of the best ways of looking at that is just in the abundance of manuscripts. You know, we, we tell our kids that the, there are more pieces, uh, either in its entirety or, or small pieces, chunks of scripture than anything else in history. I mean, that's remarkable. And the fact that we have so many manuscripts, and we've also talked to the kids like, you know, man, they were handwritten down. Because that's what the critics will say. They'll say, well, this can't be right because, you know, people had to write it down and then somebody else wrote down what he wrote down. So again, like we said, there's people that have studied half their lives on all of the these manuscripts and these copies that were done. And they've looked at all of the little tiny things that are just off. It could be a spelling error. It could be a word that was slightly different. And then they call those things when there's just slightly different things, they call them the variances. Do you want to talk about the variances more? Well, I think one of the things that's so important here is to really put some numbers to this because mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty incredible when you think about it. So let's talk about some of the, the you know, old, old writings that we have outside of the Bible. And let's talk about the number of manuscripts that we have to those things. So I'm just going to give you a couple examples. Plato, uh, the, the date of the oldest manuscript we have from Plato's teachings is about 1200 years after Plato was on the earth. And we have seven copies of those manuscripts. Um, Aristotle, 1400 years after he was on the earth, and we have about five copies of those manuscripts. Uh, I'll just give you one other one. Um, Caesar, it's about 900 years after he lived that we have these manuscripts, and we have about 10. So the most out of those three examples. The Bible, and specifically the New Testament here with these numbers I'm going to give you, we're talking like, you know, on the low end, 35-ish years after Jesus was on the earth to a maximum of maybe 100 years after. And we have almost, I mean, somewhere between 4,000, depending on how you want to count, and 5,000 manuscripts or, or section segments of scripture. I mean, it, it's, it's a completely different, and yet... Nobody is questioning the reality or the, 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 um, whether or not Plato really walked the earth. Nobody questions whether or not Aristotle was a real person. And yet we have a fraction, a tiny fraction of the number of manuscripts written thousand of years and more since when they walked the earth versus the Bible. And it's, I love actually giving those numbers because they're, the, the differences are, they're not even close. And I think it's so great how I think you just see the Lord's handprints, even just on some of these discussions of, uh, of the abundance of evidence that are, there is, because it allows you to, 
get excited with how provable this is. It's not even a stretch. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to remember all of these numbers and all of that kind of stuff, but it's just to be able to put a framework there so that you can kind of see like, man, we're not even comparing apples to apples here. I mean, it is completely different in how um, much we have. Now we do have of those, um, because there is so many manuscripts, right? There are those little variances, right? But here's another amazing thing in those variances is of the variances that are there, there is not a single one that actually contributes to any substantial change in what we believe in core doctrine of the faith. Nothing that would change the meaning of atonement or you know our, our sinful nature, nothing. There is nothing that's of the core tenets of our Christian faith that any of those little tiny variances that are there and they are there, copyist errors and those types of things, but not a single one changes what uh, any doctrine in scripture. And I think that is so profound for all of us to know and understand because it just adds to that layer of how trustworthy this is. So that, there are lots of things you could go further into uh, just you know the veracity of, of scripture um, how reliable it is. When we have these conversations with our kids, um, you could kind of pick how, how, you, how your family rolls with this. Often, I throw out an idea, sometimes, not always, and then Chris leads the conversation. Chris is really good at being able to almost role play and play devil's advocate with our kids. And that's really helpful because it, um, it gets them out of that mode of just um, it's like kind of rattling off the church answer, but rather really having to think critically, he'll just keep poking at him. Why do you think that? Where does it say that? And just, and just make them really think about those things. So we kind of lay that framework when we're, when we're talking about this stuff too. I was blessed to have a youth pastor as a kid who, uh, he would ask us questions and he would never let us get away with using what he called Christianese, where if we, you know, just said this like rote from memory Bible answer that he perceived we didn't really even know what we were saying. We were just regurgitating something that we'd heard our parents say or, or whatever. He would nail us to the wall on it. And it really caused me to think critically about what are these words that I'm using? What are these answers that I'm giving? And do they really make sense? Do they hold up? And they do. But it helped me make that transition from I believe this because my parents believe this to I believe this because I've tested it and I, and I truly believe that it's correct, that it's accurate. And I encourage you guys to give your kids examples, you know, or dive into examples yourselves of what we're talking about. You know, Amy mentioned the variance thing. Um, there's quite a few of them. But when and, and when you hear that word, it's a little like, oh, I don't want to talk about variance because, you know, that sounds like unreliability. But the reality is we're talking about really minuscule things. In some cases, we're talking about spelling errors. Uh, in other cases, we're talking about like verb tense changes. Uh, and in other, in other cases, we're talking about phrases that are slightly different. 
But but when we're talking, when you look at it that way, it's like these are really basic things. And actually, just this morning, I was reading in John uh, chapter eight, and there's one in John eight, and so I just thought I'd share it with you. So John eight, uh, verse thirty nine. This is uh, Jesus is speaking with uh, the crowds, and of course the Pharisees and all that. And uh, he's uh, they say Abraham is our father. This is the the people he's talking to. And Jesus responds and says, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. And if you look in your footnote in your Bible, it will say for verse 39, some early manuscripts, and then it quotes, if you are Abraham's children, said Jesus, then do the things Abraham did. So, one manuscript says, if you are Abraham's children, another manuscript and the one that the NIV went with is, if you were Abraham's children. So that, that counts, folks, as a variant. And when people talk about variants, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Now, as soon as I read that to you, you're like, okay, well, that's not even worth talking about. It's such a minor thing. Yeah, exactly. And when we really look at it, we can kind of see, okay, now, we're not talking about major doctrinal shifts. We're not talking about in one version that they found, it says it's all about works and another version, it's all about faith. We're talking about these minuscule nuanced differences that in the end don't change the Bible one iota. Yeah. And there's other sections. Uh, Chris was going over this with the boys of pa whole passages that have been that in some are not in there, like a, a story, you know, that that is in one gospel that is not, uh, or, or I'm sorry, is in one book, but then in other manuscripts, it's not there. However, that same story might appear in a different gospel. So they're not things that should shake our faith at all. And the other thing that I just want to put with all of these things is how important it is, like if your kids um, or a friend or a family member, if they come to you with a sincere question, um, check your, check your expression, check your countenance with how you interact with them, because you don't want to, you don't want to give this look of, I'm just appalled that you would even ask that. How can you not understand? Mm -hmm. and particularly we can do this with our kids. Like you've been hearing this your whole life. How can you not know this? Don't do that. Um, but listen to what their question is and then be so okay with not knowing the answer. And be totally okay with telling your kids or your friend or that family member, you know, I should look into that. Let, let me look into that. Or let's look into that together. If it's your kids, that's an awesome way to be able to, first of all, show them how you collect like good resources and good sources. And then also do some of that study on yourself uh, together so that you can kind of come to some conclusions and help them with their critical thinking. That can be a really great process. So, but I just wanted to make sure, because I think I have a tendency to be that way. So I'm not saying everyone struggles with this, but just sort of the, there's things that I've been, you know, growing up in a Christian home and I've heard some of these things my whole life that I think there was definitely a, a space in my life for a while that I was just kind of like shocked if people would have the nerve to say anything that this was not right. And not really give a valid argument for why I knew that it wasn't right, because I probably didn't know at the time, but to uh, almost take offense at that. And that's not showing, um, I think, tenderness. Jude later talks about um, 
uh, talks about dealing gently with those that are doubting. Mm. And um, I think that's a really cool posture to have. And I think you can see that even in how Jesus's interactions were with people that when he, he was asked questions and the way that he he talked to people, he, he never was, uh, he was just never condemning or harsh. I feel like sometimes, you, obviously you can't see what Jesus's face looks like, but it's really hard to picture Jesus as he's talking to the woman at the well and picture him with a harsh look on his face. You just don't, you don't see that. So I think it's important that whether it's whoever we're talking to, our kids or anybody that's struggling to um, have that compassion and that gentleness, I think in our words. And then also if you can have gentleness and research, do that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But to really be helping them along and really growing your own faith as well, because you're learning and you're studying and taking that contending for the faith thing really seriously. Okay, so we've talked about eyewitness accounts. We've talked about manuscripts. Let's hit two more and then we'll be done. Uh, and I love these two because of two events that happened in the mid-1900s that I think are some of the most significant things to have happened in all of Christianity in the last 250 years. And the, the two events both address different, um, in my opinion, evidence for why the Bible is reliable. So the first one, let's tackle fulfilled prophecy. And we could go on and on about this one. There are so many, but we're going we're gonna to narrow the focus down to just the nation of Israel. And you guys, probably many of you already know where I'm going with this. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, provides this unbelievable prophecy that for millennia following it, uh, you know, people would have thought there's, you know, whatever, just got to kind of pretend like that's not there. And then in 1948, uh, May of 1948, Israel, unbelievably, coming out of World War II, becomes a nation again, a nation that had ceased to exist long before that, suddenly becomes a nation again, exactly as Ezekiel 37 predicted that it would. Uh, it's, it's astounding, and I can't imagine what it would have been like to be alive during that time as you're watching this unfold in front of you as the world comes together and says, we need to give Israel its own place again. And I think, you know, if you can hear the excitement in our voice a little bit, yeah, maybe we're that nerdy, I don't know. But um, <laughs> it's, it's because there is, we can hear these things so often and we know that Israel is a nation. It's hard to peel back the, you know, just the, the pat knowledge, I guess and actually go, this is radical. I mean, the fact that a nation that was just completely gone, like did not even have their own language for thousands of years, would just come together and be a, would be a nation again. You just, but you have to sometimes help your kids and even help yourself, like peel back that you've heard that for so long, you've seen Israel in the news for so long. So of course they're a nation. Why is this crazy? It's pretty crazy. And that I, I've read quotes on atheists that don't believe in they're not Christians at all, but they believe in the this one particular one. His name is Ehrman. He believes that he saw the veracity of Scripture just in the fulfillment of 
prophecy as it related to the nation of Israel, because it's that profound. It should never have been able to happen. So then the other amazing event that occurred in the middle of the 1900s actually, amazingly enough, happened just one year before Israel became a nation again. It's almost like the Lord was trying to get people's attention back then. And the event was the unbelievable archaeological discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A cave near the Dead Sea that contained these pots and inside them were scrolls, but not just any scrolls. Up until that point, and I may get the, the dates wrong here a little bit, but the earliest um, manuscripts that we had of the Hebrew Old Testament um, dated, I think, around 1000 AD. So quite a while, frankly, from when these events actually happened. I mean, that's a long time, right? You know, you're talking about several thousand years in some cases. Um, and so how accurate are they really? Because it had happened so long. They were written so long after these events actually took place. That is what made the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery so unbelievable is because those manuscripts dated to 100 B.C., so now you've got these manuscripts that we, we were able to date and see back to 100 BC, and we could compare them to the manuscripts that we had dated at 1000 AD, over 1000 years difference, 1000 years, I man, that's crazy. We don't even know as Americans what that kind of time is like as a nation that's only been around for a couple hundred years. They compared the two texts, they were unbelievably word for word the same throughout 95% of what they found. And the 5% that was different, we've already talked about. Those are the variants, right? The verb tenses and the misspellings and whatever. So this incredible discovery that shows us, man, even over an 1100 year period, the Bible is reliable. And, and by the way, just so you know, in what was actually in those scrolls, that was a perfect copy of the entire book of Isaiah. And then fragments from every other book in the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther. I mean, it was an unbelievable treasure trove to find and a huge moment for Christianity as we found, wow, you really can rely on the Bible and what it says. And I just think it's so cool that that happened one year before the nation of Israel comes back into existence. Mm -hmm. And we're able to look at these prophecies that foretold that. And just in case people were gonna say, well, yeah, but who knows if you can really trust that. Oh no, here come the Dead Sea Scrolls that we can remember. Yeah, we just a year ago, those were found and we were able to demonstrate how accurate they are. So those are just a, a few ways that you can look at that uh, discussion of is scripture reliable? Is the manuscripts that we have, is the copy that we have, is, can we trust this? And so there's a lot of arguments. We've given you a lot of information. And there's, there's two tracks that I feel like people go on with this. Either they hear all of this stuff or they've listened to a, a sermon that's maybe outlined a lot of these things and it's really good. And then they just kind of like, 
that's just too much. It's just overload. Okay, great. The Bible's reliable. Move on. But again, I would just challenge you a little bit to get your hands on, uh, like really get your, your head around some of this information a little bit so that it feels a little comfortable. Um, no, you don't have to be an expert on these things. But look into it enough that you can contend for this issue of the faith. Because knowing that scripture is reliable is a bedrock for how you're going to, when you turn to scriptures that defend something else on another question, you know that you can count on it. So it's, it's one of those that I know it's a lot of information. Some people just don't even like to take that academic track and they're like, nope, this is just over my head and move on. Again, I'm not saying you have to be an expert, but I would really challenge you to know, to know why it is reliable, even if it's just the Cliff Notes version, know, and then also be able to have a response to people that would ask, whether that's going to be that friend or that's going to be um, a family member or your kids. Um, but being able to defend why the scripture is reliable. So that's one. Okay, we have all kinds of conversations. You can talk to your kids uh, about, you know, you can talk to your kids about creation. Oh, goodness. There's all kinds of um, arguments and, and things you can look at with that. The, the problem with why, why are there terrible things? The problem of evil, as they like to call it. Um, those are conversations, hard conversations sometimes that we have to really wrestle with. There are so many. There's some really good resources out there, and um, it doesn't have to be uh, kid-related at all, but uh, Natasha Crane has a bunch of books out there that are like keeping your kids on God's side. 40, I'll write them down, like, but 40 conversations you can have with your kids, and those are really concise. They're in short chapters, and they kind of cover the highlights of what you can talk about with your kids. Um, there are bigger books, like if you really want to go down this road, uh, you know, Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, they uh, both have written things on evidence that demands a verdict and things like that. So you can get super academic on this, on this kind of stuff. We just think it's fun to be able to sit with our kids and see their brains kind of working, kind of chewing it over. We know that the rubber hasn't really met the road for them yet in this. None of our kids have gone to college and no one or been in a like a workplace environment or had a close friend that started to really question this stuff they've not run into that yet but i guarantee you they're going to and so for us our challenge as parents is to we just want to equip them as best we can and i think the best way you can do that is just by having having these conversations don't be afraid if you don't know the answers get into it yourself but have them they're worth having. Mm -hmm. One last thing that I think is worth pointing out, because I said earlier how we want to go right to the, to, to the controversial parts that the, our kids are going to hear and, and just get it right out on the table. So let's, I, I want to do that real quickly before we end, which is um, the English Bible that we have, for me, the New International Version written in 1984, uh, when the Holy Spirit inspired John to write his gospel, he did not write it in English, right? And, and we know this and that, that's sort of like, well, yeah, no kidding. But I think it's really important that that, that is pointed out to our kids because they're going to hear. Well, you say that the, the, the Bible that you hold is inspired, but that's not even the language that it was written in originally, 
you know what? They're exactly right. It wasn't. It was written in Greek and then translated into English. And so while I will admit that the English Bible is going to be a little bit imperfect at times, and really I'd more accurately say the English language is going to be imperfect at times at being able to convey the actual meaning, the actual nuances that were written in Greek however many years ago. Um, you know, we, we, the great example of this is at the end of John, where the word love gets used in one passage over and over and over again. And in our English Bible, it just says love over and over and over again. But in the Greek, there's actually two different forms of the word love, two different words in Greek that are being used. Um, Again, if you read the passage as it is presented in English, you totally get it. There's no part of you that's going to get messed up in terms of doctrine because you're not reading the Greek. It will be a richer experience probably if you could read the Greek, but you have everything you need to understand what's going on and to place your faith in what's being said about Jesus from the English Bible. But it is true that the English Bible is not the actual words that were written by John or Moses or what have you. Um, so I think that's an important thing to point out to your kids. Hey, you know what? It was Hebrew in the Old Testament. It was Greek in the New Testament. It wasn't English. But just because that's the case doesn't in any way remove the reliability for the English Bible that we read today. So as you can see, we could probably keep going on all kinds of things. It's a little hard to stop us on this stuff. But I hope this was helpful to you guys. And I hope that it, encourage you to, it encourages you to have some of these conversations with someone. Or maybe it's just you that have yeah. some questions about, I don't really know what I think about that. Um, I would really encourage you to research that. I'm going to tell you to get some good sources and not just uh, do that Google search, and, but really do some discerning look and research at what um, what is really true about this stuff. But I do love that even in our pursuit to, uh, you know, to find um, the heart of these issues, I think the Lord just honors that too. In, uh, in he, and just continue to be praying about that. Don't just uh, approach this from an academic place. Ask the Spirit to show you how you should be viewing these things, these sources and, and different things. And, and he's going to fill in all of the gaps that we, that we just can't do. So hope that was encouraging to you. I encourage you to, uh, you can follow us on athecreekwomen.com or no, that's not it. It's Facebook, Athe Creek Women, or you can, we've got a YouTube channel at Athe Creek Women and then also on Instagram, you can follow us there too. So we will catch you guys next time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to the Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at athecreek.com.